The Supreme Court's approval rating is at record lows. A Gallup poll this summer showed that only 40% of Americans approve of the job the court is doing. For context, the court's approval rating has averaged more than 50% since Gallup began tracking it in 2000. 40% is low, but it should be even lower. It needs to be lower, much lower, if we're ever going to do anything about the court. Welcome to Contempt of Court, a podcast from The Nation, sponsored by The New Press. I'm Ellie Mistal, the Justice Correspondent for The Nation. This is the eighth and final episode of our series about reforming the Supreme Court. And today, we're going to talk about the court's only true form of power, legitimacy. I'm a parent. I have two little boys, so I think about my own legitimacy as an authority figure in their lives quite a lot. My kids are about to be 11 and 8, respectively. They're still too young to know the horrible truth. There's nothing I can actually do to them. I'm not going to hit them or starve them or lock them in their room until they learn to grow their hair long enough that a savior can climb in through their window. They listen to me and my wife, to the extent they listen to us, because they think They're supposed to. Fools! When I punish them for transgressions by, say, taking away their Nintendo, I don't even have the time or energy to move the actual machine. I do absolutely nothing to physically prevent them from playing. There are any number of ways they could still play without me knowing, and even if I found out, then what? I'm not going to smash the Nintendo like a barbarian. My response to them flouting the rules would be as ineffectual as Susan Collins's entire political career. I'd be very disappointed, and then I'd go back to doing what I normally do, just hoping next time it works out. What I know, that my kids don't yet know, is that I rule over them based on their consent to be governed. The minute they revoke that consent, my near-dictatorial authority over them is transformed into the plaintive nagging of a deranged old man. Now, I'm a god. Ten years from now, I'm a suggestions box. You can see where I'm going with this. Just like with me and my kids, the Supreme Court rules over the country based on our consent to be governed by it. It rules over Congress because Congress consents to follow the court's orders. It rules over the president because the president consents to enforce the court's orders with the point of a gun brandished by armed agents of the state, if necessary. That consent is directly tied to the view held both by the people and the actors in government with real power that the random thought bubbles emanating from the asses of nine unelected law clerics are legitimate. Most people would ignore nine old people sitting on a park bench telling them how loud to play their music, much less telling them what they're allowed to do with their own bodies. But nine old people sitting on a Supreme Court bench get to peer all the way into other people's uteruses, because we think their pontifications are legit 
and should be upheld by men with guns. It doesn't have to be this way. Arguably, it shouldn't be this way. My first guest today is Harvard Law School professor and scholar Nicholas Bowie. He makes a compelling case that the people, through their representatives, should be the ones in charge, not the Supreme Court. Professor Bowie, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I want to jump right in to the question of the Supreme Court's power. How is the Supreme Court so powerful? How did we get here? And how do we ever get away from it? I think one way of getting at the question is thinking about when has the Supreme Court disagreed with Congress about the constitutionality of one of its laws? And so the way in which a lot of law professors have answered that question is by looking at Marbury versus Madison in 1803. And that case is often cited as the origin of the Supreme Court's power of judicial review. And the court said it's emphatically the duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. But one funny thing, there, there are a few funny things about that as an origin story. I think the most interesting thing is the court wasn't actually disagreeing with Congress about anything. Like the case involved a federal law that someone invoked and asked the court to enforce it. And the court basically is like, this law does not apply in this context. And we don't think it can because that would be unconstitutional. But so the first time the court actually took a law that Congress passed and said, we just think that law is not constitutional and we just disagree with Congress is Dred Scott versus Sanford in 1857, in which the court said that Congress doesn't have the power to abolish slavery in federal territory because it violates the property rights of slave owners. And when the court announced that, this is the first time the court disagrees with Congress about the constitutionality of a law. You know, most people, when they read it, were like, what? Really? <laughs> she really just said that, like, you know, the entire platform of the Republican Party, which is calling for the non-extension of slavery, is unconstitutional. You know, we can't decide this important question for ourselves. And so the Republican Party responded to that case by basically just running against the court. Like, where did this power come from? It certainly has never been used before. We don't think it should exist. We think that, you know, the American people can decide this. And when Abraham Lincoln was inaugurated president in 1861, you know, he's like, we can have a system in which the Supreme Court decides all these really important questions, but the candid citizen must confess that we would cease to be a government of the people if we handed all of that power to this eminent tribunal. And so it wasn't really until after the Civil War, after Reconstruction and the rise of the labor movement, when the American people as a whole started to accept this idea that when it comes to the most important constitutional questions, the Supreme Court should be able to have the last word. And so it was very much a part of a cultural counter-revolution to movements on the left, to you know create multiracial democracy, to create safe and healthy working conditions, uh, and empowered labor movement. And the court basically grabbed on to striking down these federal laws, and a lot of social conservatives signed on thinking, I like what they're doing. Uh, let's keep it up. I would argue as well that one of the, the big expansions of the Supreme Court's power in this country happened in direct response to the Reconstruction Amendments. So you're kind of talking about the first time the court openly, I don't want to say defied Congress, 
openly disagreed with Congress's interpretation of the Constitution. But when you look at some of their Reconstruction era cases, the the slaughterhouse cases, for instance, and then certainly leading up to Plessy v. Ferguson, what we have is a court that is not just disagreeing with the president or Congress, it's disagreeing with the amendments foisted onto the Constitution, arguably over their objection, to cable those amendments, to cable those Reconstruction amendments, to weaken them, to lessen them, to make them less robust than perhaps even the writers of those amendments thought they should be. And the country just went along with that. Just was like, oh, yes, of course, the 15th Amendment shouldn't actually apply to anybody. Oh, yes, of course, the 13th Amendment only applies to the freed slaves. That that wasn't what was in the text of those amendments. That's something the Supreme Court kind of did on its own. Yeah, so I think it's important to be precise about what is wrong with the court. Like, what is the real source of the problem? And for me and my colleague, Daphne Renan, the source of the problem is the Supreme Court's power to invalidate federal law, to say there is no institution in the country capable of interpreting the Constitution better than us. And that even if Congress writes the 14th Amendment, gets it ratified, and then starts enacting laws to enforce the 14th Amendment, we are better than them at interpreting that amendment and deciding what it means. And so, you know, when Congress proposed the 14th Amendment, it did so in a context where all of these southern states were actively resisting it. Like Congress had to deny representation to like representatives from southern states until their states adopted multiracial constitution and then those new state legislatures ratified the 14th Amendment. So Congress knew states were going to be super hostile to enforcing all of these new Reconstruction Amendments. And so what they attempted to do was like try to enforce these new amendments any way they could. They created new agencies like the Freedmen's Bureau and said, go enforce this. They told the military, like, if you see the Klan, stop them, arrest them. <laughs> uh, and they told federal courts, you know, enforce the Constitution against hostile state actors. If you see a state actor violating the Constitution, enjoy them. And the problem began not just because the court had like bad opinions about what these amendments meant, which was certainly an issue, but that even when Congress went ahead and said, and here's what we think the 14th Amendment means, so in telling you to enforce it, here's some guidance, the court responded to that by saying, I don't know. That seems really aggressive, Congress. Do you really think the 14th Amendment empowers you to pass an anti-discrimination law? Do you really think the 15th Amendment empowers you to pass a voting rights law that affects you know, private citizens? We don't think so. And so Congress passed all this, these laws in Reconstruction era. They passed a Civil Rights Act. They passed a Voting Rights Act. They passed laws to prevent lynching. And the Supreme Court struck those down. And so it was only because the court disagreed with Congress about its own power that Plessy versus Ferguson or cases like it were even an issue. Because when Congress is passing civil rights laws, Louisiana couldn't adopt a segregation ordinance because that would have been illegal. You know, it would have been illegal to segregate. But it was only after the court struck that down that states like Louisiana and Virginia and the rest of the Jim Crow South said, oh, it looks like we have this ally in the court. We can get away with a lot. And then when people invoked these federal laws saying, hey, court, aren't you supposed to stop these constitutional violations? The court's response was, 
oh, you know, that's a lot of work. I'm not really sure that we have the power. Besides, you know, slavery ended, you know, 20 years ago. Surely black people can stand up for themselves. And so it's it's the real it's the disagreement with Congress that like begins the rest of the issue and remains the root of the problem today. Okay, but to push back, doesn't somebody have to disagree with Congress? Because while yes, there are times in history, there are times that we can all point to where Congress has been on the right side of history, there are also times in history that we can all point to that Congress has been on the wrong side of history. So like if the Supreme Court is not allowed to check or is not supposed to or has too much power to check federal laws enacted by Congress, doesn't somebody still need to have that power? Or are we just going to let Congress kind of do what Congress does? No, Congress is awful. Uh, I mean, (laughs) I, I certainly am not going to argue that, like, let's trust Congress with everything. But there is a check. And in a democracy, the check is the people. It's voters. It's you and me. And when we can't vote, it's us in the streets demanding the ability to vote. So one story that predates Marbury versus Madison involves this campaign against the Alien and Sedition Acts in the late uh, 18th century. So Congress passed these laws, one of which was the first deportation law. The other made it a crime to criticize the president under some circumstances. And federal courts upheld these laws. They were like, these laws look good to us. We're federalists. They're federalists. We're all federalists. Looks like good federal legislation. And so Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison were like, we think these laws are unconstitutional. The federal courts are not doing anything about it. We think maybe states should get in the way. But at the very least, we're going to campaign for the White House on a platform of the federalists are violating the Constitution. And they won. They won in 1800. And so once they came into power, you know, the laws that they objected to either expired and they didn't renew them or they repealed them. And then they went ahead and they went after the Federalists on the courts. So they abolished, you know, like 16 courts that the Federalists had set up, the the entire courts of appeals. And in Congress, Federalist members of Congress were like, hey, you can't get rid of these courts because who's going to check Congress if the courts can't? You know, surely there's a role here for courts to stop Congress from doing horrible things. And the Jeffersonians in Congress were like, yes, we just saw Congress do horrible things. The check was us. And surely you cannot believe in a system of checks and balances in which courts can check the legislature, but the legislature cannot check the courts. And so they went ahead and they pushed out all of these Federalist judges. And Marbury versus Madison basically took all the Federalist arguments from Congress and put it into a judicial opinion, saying, like, we see what's happening here, and we don't really like it, but there doesn't seem to be much we can do about it. And that's the story of Marbury. It's the story of the court looking at voters checking Congress and thinking, surely courts should be playing this role, not you guys. Mm. You know, Congress does pass horrible, horrible legislation. But if you look at American history, the typical horrible federal law is repealed not by the Supreme Court, but by voters. So when Congress dispossesses Native Americans, the court's like, awesome. When Congress interns Japanese Americans, the court says, you know, it's really offensive for you to call this racism. To us, this is just winning a war. (laughs) When Congress, you know, has gone after communists in the federal government, like labeling anybody they didn't like a red, when Congress has passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, like take the worst federal laws you can think of. The court has typically said, that's fine with us. Mm-hmm. And so to rely on the court 
as like this necessary check, I think does a disservice to how the, to the history and the memory of how these horrible laws have been repealed. They've been repealed by really angry people, not by courts sitting there thinking, yeah, we need to make justice. We've been talking about federal law. Does your answer change a little bit when we start talking about state law? Like, does your answer change when the court is not checking an act of Congress, but is checking Mississippi? And I bring this up because I think when a lot of people think of the court as a force for good, they think of the Warren court. They think of the civil rights era. And it's important to me, I, I think, to, to emphasize that when you look at what the Warren court is doing, a lot of times the Warren courts are invalidating or massaging state laws not federal laws. So does your answer kind of change in terms of how much power the Supreme Court should have as we start looking at state laws that are putatively violative of the federal constitution or our system of of civil rights? Yeah, so I think it's really important to distinguish judicial review of federal law, which I don't like, and judicial review of state law, which uh, I think can be hit or miss. And one way of thinking about it is to go back into the minds of the Reconstruction Congress. So Congress has just pushed through the 14th Amendment, passing all of these civil rights and voting rights laws. And they see, like, Mississippi is not going to uphold these laws. So Congress is thinking, like, how are we going to stop Mississippi and all these other states from just creatively evading these laws? So again, they, like, they sent agencies after, and they sent the military after, and they sent federal courts after these laws. And they said, go forth, federal courts, and stop these bad state actors. And to me, you know, that, that's totally appropriate. A national legislature should be able to enforce national legislation to have a more democratic body than the Supreme Court decide what our national commitment should be makes a ton of sense. And to the extent that, you know, a single state wants to resist that, living in a country, like one consequence of being in a federal republic is having some sense of federal guidance about how uh, the system should operate, whether it's coming from courts or from the national legislature. And so the law that Congress passed in 1871, it was called the Ku Klux Klan Act, or the Civil Rights Act of 1871, which said federal courts go and enforce the Constitution. That is the law that Thurgood Marshall and other NAACP litigants invoked in the lead up to Brown when they said Kansas and all these other states are violating the Constitution. Federal courts, please enforce what Congress has asked you to do. And in Roe versus Wade and in Obergefell versus Hodges, like all of these cases involve the same 1871 statute. And the significance is not that this like same statute is behind all of these landmark decisions, but that what it represents is the national legislature telling national courts, enforce national law, against all these rogue actors. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes the court does that well, and sometimes the court does it horribly. But the important thing for us is that when the court does a bad thing, like the American people should be able to respond to that without having to go through the process of amending the Constitution. Like the U.S. Constitution is the most difficult Constitution in the world to amend of any major democracy. And to have a system in which the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Constitution can only be reversed by the Supreme Court or supermajorities of both houses of Congress and supermajorities of three quarters of the states, like, that's a crazy system <laughs> relative to, you know, vote members of Congress out of office, which we, you know, happens at least more routinely than the 27 amendments we've seen. Absolutely. I mean, 
So I mean, think exp- having explained kind of how we got here, what do we do about it? Because while it's great to say, oh, we should we should empower Congress more, I imagine I I can play the thought experiment of you know going into John Roberts's house and saying, John Roberts, you should use less power, and him escorting me to the door. <laughs> Certainly, Neil Gorsuch barely thinks the federal government should be allowed to exist. Certainly doesn't think that any executive agencies, like the ones you were men- mentioning that Congress deployed after Reconstruction, certainly Neil Gorsuch doesn't think that any of those agencies are allowed to exist. So how do we go about depowering the court when the court itself is the institution that says, we have all of this power? Yeah, so... You can think of a few obstacles in the way of Congress or the American people disempowering the court. Some are legal and some are cultural. Mm. So to the extent that you focus on the legal obstacles, but you don't address the cultural obstacle. So you're like, the Supreme Court decides what the Constitution means. So if Congress tries to stop the court, the court will just say it's unconstitutional. At that point, you've lost. Because that's true. <laughs> you know, the court, you know, John Roberts is not going to agree to like cede the enormous amount of power he has. That's, you know, it would be a revolutionary act. He, of, uh, he's not Cincinnatus. All right. <laughs> yeah, right. Generosity. <laughs> um, but the, the key thing is it's cultural. So going back to Dred Scott, you know, Congress's and the, the American people's response to Dred Scott, some of them were like, awesome. We're going to form a country that's like based on this idea. Um, <laughs> But for the people who remained part of the United States, the response to Dred Scott was not rats. I guess we have to wait for Chief Justice Taney to die so we can replace him with a better judge. It it wasn't even let's pack the court with better people. It was, we do not think the court should have this power, so we are going to ignore this decision. Uh, so in 1862, so five years after Dred Scott, in the middle of the Civil War, Congress passed a law that said slavery in the territories is abolished. No more slavery in the territory. The holding of Dred Scott, one of the holdings of Dred Scott was Congress cannot regulate slavery in the territories. Congress just said, no, like, we just disagree with you. And we're going to enforce this ourselves using our own people rather than you know comply with this decision that we regard as deeply immoral and an inappropriate interpretation of the Constitution. When the court started exercising this power more after the Civil War and during Reconstruction, some members of Congress were like, hey, you know, everything the court does is a consequence of federal law. So if the court is trying to assert its supremacy over us, we should just take away its power to do that. So there were some bills to prohibit the court from issuing orders absent the support of three quarters of uh, the Supreme Court on the theory that you need supermajorities of Congress to overcome a presidential veto. So surely a Supreme Court veto should not be even more powerful than that. Mm. Some members of Congress said, let's control the membership of the court. Um, Some members of Congress said, you know, let's control the funding that the court receives. Let's change how the court operates. Some members said, let's take away its power to issue certain types of orders. So when it comes to what they called political questions, the court would not have jurisdiction to decide them. And all of these options have been employed in the subsequent uh, century and a half. They remain available today. And so it's really just a matter of asking, what do you think Congress would need to do before 
Chief Justice Roberts would say, okay, I give up. And the answer is, it's actually not a legal question at all, really. It's just a question of like, what do you think you could politically do to reassert democracy? I want to bring up two other factors that I think complicate this this idea of trying to delegitimize, de-empower, right-size, if you will, the power of the Supreme Court. One is the complication that Congress, the people that you're saying should have this power, should take this power, a lot of times, I feel, don't want the power. They prefer that's true. Being able to, to, to kind of say, well, well, I couldn't do anything because uh, <laughs> yeah. the Supreme Court people. Anyway, vote for me on Saturday. Like the, this is a, a problem that I think absolutely crosses party lines where it is convenient at various points, especially for whatever party is in power, to say that their hands are tied or befuddled by the Supreme Court. So here's the thing. I would love to live in a country in which there were a democratic legislature that were you know, listening to voters, treating them as political equals, responding to concerns, legislating on behalf of the American people, as all of us equally demand and need, that helps us all live fulfilling lives. I want that legislature. And so the question for me is, how do we get from here, where we are now, to there? And the answer is not going to be relying on the Supreme Court to interpret its understanding of the Constitution in order to somehow transform our politics to get there. Mm-hmm. The answer is going to rely on a lot of political activism demanding a more democratic legislature. One problem is that when people have successfully done that, the Supreme Court has said, we think this is unconstitutional. You know, so the Voting Rights Act. One reason why Congress is so dysfunctional right now is because Past Congresses have passed campaign finance laws, voting rights laws, laws to protect the political integrity of the process, laws that prohibit corruption. And every time the court says, we're either going to extremely narrowly interpret this law or we're just going to call it unconstitutional. So even after 50 years of unanimous Congresses upholding the Voting Rights Act and reaffirming it, the court's like, I don't know. The 15th Amendment says you can pass appropriate legislation. We don't think this is appropriate. In conclusion, you can't enforce it. Right. And so I think part of the reason why it's so easy to look at Congress now and say, yeah, that institution is horrible. We shouldn't trust it. It's like, well, yeah, you're looking at someone that's been held captive by this other institution. It's like, trust us. We know the answer. Don't trust that guy. By the way, we're also stabbing it with every resource we have at our disposal. So I think part of a solution here is not only demanding that Congress actually either reauthorize or, or uh, resume enforcing legislation like the, the Voting Rights Act, but also doing so in a way that doesn't rely on the Supreme Court's own willingness to uphold it as the basis for, for the law. So, you know, what that means in practice is like when Congress first passed the Voting Rights Act, they knew that like South Carolina is going to be super hostile. So let's direct all legislation through courts in D.C. And today that's going to look really different because now the hostile institution is the Supreme Court itself. And so Congress has to write legislation that relies on different institutions to enforce it when they know the court's a hostile actor, at least until there's a change in membership or more justices added to the court or something in between. And if you look at other countries 
in which they've had these like grossly disproportionate parts of their legislature, like the House of Lords in England. You know, it took really creative legislation and raw political power to disempower the House of Lords. Like the House of Commons is like, we're going to defund you and we're going to do all sorts of horrible things to you unless you take away your power. And it was at that moment when the House of Commons pushed through the Parliament Act that the House of Lords said, maybe we should not stand in the way here before we lose everything else we have. And it's like that kind of creative legislation is sort of what you need in order to respond to modern conditions. But you can easily imagine what would happen if Congress attempted to pass legislation tomorrow or, you know, in 2025 or whatever, that attempted, say, to disempower the Senate or that attempted to, you know, create proportional representation or end gerrymandering or do whatever else we need. The court would say, I don't know if we think this is constitutional. And that's that to me is the problem that that it's like we need to get rid of that kind of thinking, the kind of thinking of. We have no ability to interpret the Constitution for ourselves. Like, we can't interpret the Constitution as a document that requires equal representation and that requires treating people with dignity because Brett Kavanaugh doesn't think so. Like, that, that is ceding a tremendous amount of authority to a lawyer. And as a lawyer, I, I don't want that person to have that authority. <laughs> Look, season two of Contempt of Court is going to be abolish the Senate. Like that's going to be a whole different podcast series um, that we run about how that that's an institution that just needs to die. I would just add that I think that part of the problem here comes from the people who are part of the Supreme Court reporting bar. I think that far too many of the lawyers and other ostensibly smart people that cover the Supreme Court really like to use the jargon, really like to make these uh, cases seem like they're intensely complicated and extremely dense. And as you say, it's not, it need not be that complicated. I'm not going to say that it's easy, right? But like the people who understand how the law works the least might be in Congress. Like (laughs) the problems that you have sometimes and, and that leads to potentially judicially supreme opinions is that Congress regularly writes bad, vague, unenforceable laws, again, kind of almost kicking it to the Supreme Court to sort it out later. So like, how do you deal with the the kind of legal illiteracy of Congress, even as you are trying to empower Congress to have more authority to make some of these uh, constitutional decisions? Yeah, so your question makes me think of when Alexis de Tocqueville came to the United States in the 1830s and 40s, and he was looking around, and one of his observations was, wow, the American people just really like to debate stuff. Like, everyone seems to care a lot about the political issues that affect them, and they're, like, really intense about it. And then the second observation was, wow, lawyers really like to treat themselves as part of a priesthood that can only be understood by themselves. And they also really care about these political issues. So the net effect is these political issues always wind up in front of lawyers who are like, we, we will take this. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for bringing us this issue. We will come back to you with our considered response. And, and so the Tocqueville looked at this and was like, this seems to us, to me, like an aristocracy rather than the democracy that I've been praising for you know, volume one of my book. And 
I, I think that, you know, what you're saying about the media coverage of the court today is, is reminiscent of that. It's this idea that there are some issues that should be unintelligible to you and me uh, or to anyone else who has not been to law school. And even though they're the issues that, like, affect everything we are allowed to do, from who we are allowed to sleep with to where we are allowed to live and how I get treated by others in the street, like, things that could not be more personal yep. somehow are beyond my intelligence. Um, and I don't, I don't think that's true. But I also don't think that it's true to characterize Congress as a bunch of idiots either who, you know, don't know what sorts of laws they're writing. It's really hard to predict the future. It's really hard for people who are following the court to predict what they're going to do. It's really hard as a legislator to predict how are others going to react to the words I'm putting on paper. Mm. especially if you're running a country and you're passing laws that may last for decades. It's hard. Like, you know, if, you, if I were to ask you, like, you're now the swing vote in the Senate. Like, write a law that effectively responds to the climate crisis. Like, good luck. Yeah. You know, you're, you'll try. <laughs> you'll be like, well, people shouldn't pollute. And then people will be like, what does pollute mean? You know, but like, <laughs> you know, you're, you're trying. But... That's different from saying these are unintelligible or, or that the laws themselves are vague. What it, what it reflects is law is a matter of like continuous adaptation. Mm. It's like we try one thing, we see if it works, we try again, we see if that works. Law is not this like static thing. And the same is true, frankly, of the Constitution. It's true for all law. Like you can write something at one moment thinking you're solving one problem only to discover 10 years later that there is a new problem related to the first one that you didn't address, you didn't think of. Digital Millennium Copyright Act. <laughs> <laughs> or, or there are problems that you purposely put off because you didn't have the answer for it at the time. You didn't have the consensus for it at the time. But that's what politics is. And so one of the reasons why I feel so passionately about the Supreme Court's power is because I think its power has the effect of disempowering all of us. Mm. Professor Nicholas Bowie, thank you so much for joining me. Um, fascinating conversation, and it makes sense. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like we're closer than, than even I think to really having, as you put it, that cultural shift that is necessary before real reform can truly uh, take root. So thank you so much for joining. Me. Thank you. That was fun. Bowie's plan, unfortunately, requires our elected leaders to grow a spine and stand up to the Supreme Court. But, as he mentioned, that is unlikely to happen without massive public support for the elected branches of government. That's why I say that the Supreme Court's approval rating actually needs to be a lot lower. The people need to agree that the court is illegitimate before Congress and the president are likely to rediscover their own constitutional powers. My next guest, Rhiannon Hammam, host of the fantastic Supreme Court podcast 5-4, has some thoughts on what's happening on the ground as people try to take back power from the court through direct action. Rhiannon, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Really honored to be invited. And uh, yeah, thanks for the shout out to the podcast 5-4. We just talk about how much the Supreme Court sucks one case at a time. 
as a person who, you know, has this entire kind of, again, critically acclaimed, wonderful show talking about the Supreme Court at a kind of granular level, what's your feeling on whether or not this delegitimization crisis that people who, like you and I, who watch the court kind of every day feel should be obvious. Do you think that people who are not watching the court every day, people who are just kind of tuning in maybe once a week, maybe once a month, do you think that it's starting to seep through the ether that this Supreme Court is out of control and a huge problem? I think that it's starting to. I think that's right. You know, we have accepted for so long a structure of judicial supremacy, right, that the Supreme Court really created for itself and the conservative legal movement enshrined over the last 50 years. You know, judicial supremacy is the vehicle, the institutional structure through which this conservative legal movement has been able to achieve really quite conservative policy goals without a political or electoral majority, right? So when mm-hmm. we start to shift and think about how conservative the policy goals they have gained through the Supreme Court over just the last couple of years, I think people are starting to get a sense something is not right up there, right? And, you know, I think that you can take a step back and see, even if you're not a lawyer, even if you're not some expert on the conservative jurisprudential doctrines, right? A regular person, we're talking to regular people on our podcast, you get a sense that something is wrong up there. There are six Mm -hmm. hyper-conservative maniacs, frankly, on the Supreme Court Three of them handpicked by a president who did not win the popular vote. And they are enacting policy for the Republican Party that is oftentimes more conservative than what the Republican Party themselves are asking for. And so I think the normal person really, you know, it might not be that they have a specific understanding of what's going on there, but I think people have a sense like something is not right with this institution. Something is not right when six unelected, democratically, completely unaccountable people really rule over our political system, rule outside and above the constitutional structure of the other branches of government. What do you say to the criticisms that this is all partisan, that the reason why people like you and I are complaining about the legitimacy of the court is because we don't like its current decisions. You were all for judicial supremacy in the past. Now we're against it because we don't like the decisions. Now, I personally have an answer to that, which is, yeah, I like judicial supremacy when they're stopping racists from being jackasses. And I don't like judicial supremacy when they're anointing themselves the kings and queens of other people's uteruses. And I don't feel like that is a particularly problematic stance. So go fuck yourself. But other people uh, say that this is that this is kind of just a partisan issue and not a structural issue. What do you what do you say? What do you think about that? I take a step back, maybe even further. And I think the thing we have to recognize is that just because the Supreme Court as an institution has laundered what they do with the rhetoric that uh, we all have to be deferential to this institution, that they are apolitical outside of the political system. I think the assumption we should be working from is that adjudicating the law 
doing what the Supreme Court does, taking cases and ruling on them, is a political process. They are doing politics, right? So when the court is packed in the Republican Party's method of court packing, which they have already done, with partisan hacks, we all have to recognize yeah, that this is part of partisan politics and that there are political solutions to the political methods that they're using right now. Mm. Just because they say they're not political does not mean <laughs> that, that that is the case, right? So I think what it is is, yeah, it is a little bit partisan. I'm angry about what the Supreme Court is doing because I, I disagree with conservative ideology and conservative policy goals, right? And I think that the Republican Party has packed a court to their liking, handpicked these six maniacs so that they can achieve their partisan goals in this uh, supposedly apolitical branch of government institution. So, yeah, I'm OK with the criticism that my criticism is partisan, right? It, it, it definitely is. And I think we would all do well to recognize and be more upfront about the fact that that's because what the Supreme Court does is partisan. Right. Um, and because this institution has created for itself a deference from the other branches of government, has uh, enacted judicial supremacy as the structure through which it operates, that means that structurally it can do partisan work. What does it mean on the ground? to yeah. delegitimize the court, to strip the court of its supremacist function, right? Because a lot, well, let's put it like this, a lot of this podcast, a lot of my work is focused on court reform and specifically sure. court expansion, right? Yeah. And that's great. That's fun. I think that that would work, but it fundamentally kind of presupposes the idea that these nine, or in my case, 29 or 30, however many you want, right. justices do have some kind of overarching controlling role of our society. And I'm trying to kind of change the kinds of people who get to make those decisions. But that's right. not really delegitimizing the court. That's rearranging the deck chairs so they stop stabbing me in the face on the way right. down. Right. One of the reasons why I like your work is that even as simple as like, you, you don't talk about these people in the kind of genuflecting tones right. um, that a lot of us have been trained to kind of talk about the justices. But beyond kind of rhetoric, what does delegitimization actually look like when it's applied to this court? Yeah, I have two thoughts, and I think both of them come from my background and readings as a prison abolitionist, right? In prison abolition, when we're talking about abolishing the prison industrial complex, we are talking first, you know, people ask, well, how do you get rid of prisons, right? How do you delegitimize the Supreme Court? It's a co-equal branch of government in the Constitution, right? What, what you're thinking about actually in terms of, at least in the short term, is shrinking its power, you know, court expansion does not abolish the Supreme Court, right? But what it does is shrink individual justices' power. So it's not only about changing who is making the decisions on the court, which is uh, extremely important, but it's also about making sure John Roberts, Sam Alito, Clarence Thomas, Amy Coney Barrett, right, that they don't have the outweighed 
disproportionate, mm-hmm. massive amount of power that they have over the institution right now. So that that goes to shrinking power, right? Other structural reform proposals, things like jurisdiction stripping, right? That also shrinks the power of the Supreme Court. That is towards a what I would call sort of an abolitionist goal that is towards a delegitimization process structurally of the Supreme Court as we have it now. Now, another idea that I have that really comes from prison abolition as well, and I think speaks to your question about like, what does this look like on the ground? Okay, so Mm -hmm. for normal people in my community, right, teachers and doctors and bus drivers, right, how are they thinking about the Supreme Court and how do we delegitimize the Supreme Court in their minds and in their lives? You know, something I've learned from prison abolition also is about the power of imagination. Hmm. The system that we have does not have to be this way. We are capable of imagining a legal system that is truly about equality and justice for all. And we have the power to think about how we want that structure to look, right? So it's about building people power. But I actually have a few examples of this happening already. One example is in the reproductive justice space. So Dobbs, of course, overturned Roe v. Wade last year. Many states across the country soon uh, banned abortion. But there are a few things that people are doing on the ground that uh, basic. Can we curse on this podcast? Yes, we have the explicit (laughs) tag all ready to fucking go. Right. (laughs) Okay. Uh, But there are a few things, massive impact that community organizations are having right now that say, fuck Dobbs. Fuck your Supreme Court. Right. Mm -hmm. In state legislatures, five states, including Colorado and Massachusetts, I believe, have passed shield laws to protect health care providers in their states who provide any health care that is legally protected in that state, which includes prescribing and sending abortion pills to anyone in the United States. Right. That's an example of state lawmakers acting, saying, you know what? Okay, Dobbs says what it says. We're going to do what we can do that circumvents, that is around and outside the scope of that uh, awful ruling. And then community support networks. I talked about people power, right? They are now providing free abortion bills to people living in states with abortion bans. You know, dozens of companies offer abortion pills now at low cost online, some less than $50. Delivery is within a few days. That is because groups said, fuck the Supreme Court. We don't care what they say. We're going to support people making reproductive choices for themselves, their families, their communities, no matter what the law says. We operate outside of this. The Supreme Court does not speak for me, right? Mm. Um, I think there's another example in the case of student loan debt. There's a great organization called the Debt Collective. I read a wonderful book published by them called Can't Pay, Won't Pay, The Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition. They're, they're, yeah, um, you know, their stance, they have written the model uh, executive order for President Biden. Their stance, even after the student loan debt case where the Supreme Court said um, that- Stole $10,000 from everybody, yeah. Stole $10,000 from everybody. That's right. Uh, The Debt Collective says President Biden could cancel all student loan debt today with an executive order. He could do that today. And then what? Right? What's the Supreme Court going to do about that? Right? (laughs) I don't accept your decision, Supreme Court. Thank you so much. We are operating outside of the scope of power, the scope of authority that you think you have. 
Labor organizing, I think, is another really good example of this people power delegitimizing the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has played a massive role in weakening unions, you know, ever since the passage yes. of the NLRA, right? But you get workers acting collectively, you know, uh, I'm just thinking about the recent UPS workers threatening a strike, right? You get workers acting collectively. Corporations do not have a choice. The people's power is way too massive, right? Our economic power together outside of the legal system, outside of the structure of judicial supremacy is where the power lies and is where I think we would do well to connect that we are delegitimizing the power of the Supreme Court when we are organizing in these ways. When I think of, of stripping the court of its power, I always come back to Federalist 78, where Alexander Hamilton writes, the Supreme Court is going to be the least dangerous branch of government because it has neither the power of the purse or the power of the sword. And I always kind of come back to that line because Hamilton was wrong. Hamilton was completely yeah. freaking wrong. But why? Because on paper, she should be right. And I always come back to the idea that the reason why Hamilton was wrong is because the people with the power of the sword, the executive branch, the president, always seems, Teddy Roosevelt accepted, to want to enforce Supreme Court edicts that may or may not be constitutional on their face. And Congress, the people with the power of the purse, is always willing to fund whatever boondoggle the Supreme Court wants to send the country on next. And I wonder if there's ever a point where those two branches of government will take the power back for themselves. So, for instance, you brought up Dobbs, obviously, already. I've long said I do not see why Biden isn't performing abortions on military bases right now. What's gonna, Is Clarence Thomas going to rush Fort Bragg? I don't think so, right? right? right. So, like, you could yeah. just be doing the abortions right there in Texas right now. It just with the power of the sword, power of the purse. I had uh, Hank Johnson on earlier um, in this series to talk about his bill to force the Supreme Court to adopt an ethics bill. Right. You could also strip the funding of the Supreme Court yes. until they adopt it, ethics reforms or any other structural change, right? The Constitution says there has to be a Supreme Court. Doesn't say where. Supreme Court can hold their hearings in the park for all the Constitution gives. They don't need the fancy building and the robes and the clerk, right? So is there, do you, from where you sit, do you see any kind of will to actually start taking power back from the Supreme Court and putting it back into their own branches of government? Yeah, uh, this is a really good question. I think short answer is no. Um, I'm incredibly disappointed by the Democratic Party for not taking this political moment when people are starting to understand what's happening at the Supreme Court. These approval ratings are incredibly low right now in the public. And the Democratic Party isn't taking that seriously, right? And uh, certainly has not planned for this moment, even though uh, a lot of people could see this coming and hasn't responded to this moment with any sort of moral force, purpose, any of that. So I think that goes back to, for me, what I was saying about the power of imagination, right? Mm -hmm. I think that conservative judicial supremacy has gotten us progressives, whoever's left of center, Democrats, what have you, has gotten us incredibly limited in what we think is possible, right? If we always have in our minds this looming dead end that mm -hmm. if it, you know, some sort of a package of progressive legislation is passed, that the Supreme Court is always going to be there to strike it down. Well, you, you have really a Congress, a Senate that's 
not acting with any sort of imagination about what we could do, right? One other point uh, is that I think this lack of imagination and this sort of, uh, frankly, what I think is, is political cowardice is sort of unique to the Democratic Party. <laughs> Republicans do not care about judicial supremacy, right? right? Republicans in states across the country passed laws that were absolutely illegal under Roe v. Wade over and over and over and over again for decades until Roe v. Wade was overturned, right? Yep. Alabama, the state of Alabama, just now, just this term, there was a Supreme Court ruling in Allen v. Milligan that Alabama had violated the Voting Rights Act, right, by only giving one of its seven districts to uh, a, a Black voting majority, even though Black people in Alabama uh, constitute almost one in three people in the total state population. The Supreme Court, this conservative Supreme Court said, that violates the Voting Rights Act, Alabama. You need to redraw those uh, congressional maps, right? What did Alabama say? Alabama said... Come down here and make me. Kick rocks, John Roberts. Kick rocks, conservative Supreme Court. We're not doing that. They did remake their, their uh, congressional districts. They did not give two black majority districts. It is still just one. So it really begs the question, like, where are our ostensibly progressive politicians on this, right? I want to back up this point because I think I think people forget that white conservative Republicans have always thumbed their nose at Supreme Court rulings they don't like. Yes. People, it, it is a myth. It is a fucking myth to think that Brown v. Board of Ed ended segregation. Right. That is not what ended segregation. What ended segregation was Bobby Kennedy sending boots on the ground, yes. troops to Arkansas to integrate the schools. That's right. what ended segregation in right. Arkansas, not some ruling on a piece of paper that Klansmen and white conservatives just ignored. Right. And in fairness, have continued to ignore at every point when the federal government is not willing to put boots on the ground and force them. And that has been the conservative policy since Reconstruction. Yeah, Granted, that's exactly back then right. the conservatives were called Democrats. Now they call themselves Republicans. I don't give a fuck what they call themselves in the morning. But if you look at the history of this country since Reconstruction, at the moment, the white liberals stop putting their foots on the neck of their conservative white cousins, they revert back to any kind of racist bullcrap that the Supreme Court allegedly said was unconstitutional. Yeah, so that's exactly this, right. This point that Rayon is making, it's so important. Republicans always do this. They always do this. You can look at when there is a Supreme Court decision, even from the uh, conservative Supreme Court, right? Look at how Chief Justice John Roberts has been lambasted in conservative media over the past 15 years since he's, since he's been on the court, being criticized, dragged through the mud. That they call he him is a not, rhino. Yes, that he is not <laughs> delivering on, on the uh, conservative goals that uh, Republicans put him on the Supreme Court to achieve, right? Right. Um, and, and, and just again, like the Republicans, the Supreme Court justices used the complete Republican refusal to abide by Roe v. Wade as one of their reasons for overturning Roe v. Wade. 
Exactly. Like that was actually in the decision they wrote about how just the conservative refusal to accept the decision meant the decision wasn't actually precedent. It was always up for like that's their actual freaking logic. Right. Right. Exactly. So I think I think it's very telling when you pay attention to conservative media and what Republican politicians say about the Supreme Court when the Supreme Court is delivering the rulings that they want and when the Supreme Court is delivering the rulings that they don't want. So we have this incredibly hyper-conservative Supreme Court right now. So Mitch McConnell writes an op-ed, right, a couple of weeks ago saying criticism of the Supreme Court is uncalled for. The Supreme Court takes cases as they come. They are the umpires, right? They're just calling the balls and strikes. The Supreme Court is not a partisan political institution. This is Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell, the man who held up the replacement of Antonin Scalia, right, so that a Republican could appoint a replacement. This is Mitch McConnell, who uh, early on in the Senate, right, uh, decades ago, said that Republicans needed to take control of the federal judiciary, take the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court incredibly seriously. Why is that? That's not because Mitch McConnell believes that the Supreme Court takes cases as they come and uh, and rules on them in a nonpartisan way. So let me get you out here on this. Whose ass do we need to put our foot up, right? Because, you know, I, I think about 2019, 2020 during the primary process where, you know, I've scoured the earth for a Democrat who is going to take the Supreme Court as seriously as it needed to be taken in a pre-Dobbs world. Right. And honestly, you know, I've talked about this earlier on the series, you know, I ended up with Pete Buttigieg. Mm-hmm. He was the only one talking about it, really. Yeah. Right. And you, know, you go down the list of progressives, Bernie Sanders, very late to the game. Elizabeth Warren kind of eventually did get there. Biden was the most uh, uh, resistant to Supreme Court reform and has continued to be so as president. So, you know, we can talk about that. I, I, I Right now, my current kind of punching bag is Dick Durbin. Because he never should have been head of the Senate Judiciary Committee. It was a job that, that he did not have the teeth for. It should have been Sheldon Whitehouse, who has been on this uh, uh, for decades. And Durbin's um, management of the Senate Judiciary Committee has confirmed all of my worst fears about how he would run run things. Even before Feinstein, you know, I'm not even, right. I don't know what to say. Right. Even right. before Feinstein. Yeah. So, like, I, I guess my question then is, like, where are the future leaders on this issue, given that our current leaders, on the Democratic side at least, are so bad and so unwilling to meet the Republicans where they stand and fight their fire with fire? Yeah, yeah. I think in the short term, it absolutely depends on continued increased pressure on people like Senator Dick Durbin, right, who, yes, invited Chief Justice John Roberts with a with a lovely invitation to come speak to to come speak to the Judiciary Committee about, uh, you know, the proposal, the need for new ethics rules over there. Uh, John Roberts politely declined that invitation. And then what? This is the Senate. Well, they have polite, quite frankly. Right. right. Brush it off. I don't care about this. Uh, no thanks, John Roberts said, right? And this is the Senate Judiciary Committee. We are talking about subpoena power, right? We mm-hmm. are talking about uh, the power to hold public hearings for public officials, right, who break the law. I am astounded that Clarence Thomas has very likely 
broken existing laws already. Set aside that we need new ethics rules, right? right? He has broken existing laws and there has been no accountability, right? At all. Nothing. So, you know, we need these people as uh, because they are public officials, because they are political actors. They must be made to be accountable to the people, right? We need public hearings on this. Now, in the long term, you asked about future leaders and who those future leaders are. I think that law students right now, young lawyers who certainly are are sort of, you could say, maybe coming of age in a Trump administration or post-Trump administration world in a six conservative supermajority Supreme Court world, they're really starting to understand where political pressure and where advocacy are going to get us real results, right? And that's in, I think, everything that we've talked about today. That's in advocacy and organizing outside of the scope of the Supreme Court, saying these rulings, you can hand them down as much as you want, go off, but that doesn't apply to me. Right. And I am building people power. These new lawyers are saying I am taking part in movements that are about building that people power so that a Supreme Court is accountable to the people and we are able to you know, achieve justice and equality without the six maniacs. Let's leave it there, because that is honestly one of the more hopeful messages that I've had on this entire series. Um, Rhiannon Hamam, host of 5-4, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. This was a blast. The reason I wanted to create this show, and to a large extent, the reason why I decided to become a journalist covering the Supreme Court, is because I believe that the people would take power back from the court if only they knew that they could. Too often, people see a bad Supreme Court ruling, or string of bad court rulings, or era of extremist, indefensible court rulings, and throw up their hands and say, well, it's the Supreme Court. Nothing we can do. Congress does that. The President of the United States, one of the most powerful people on the globe, does that too. Hey, I think six of the nine unelected law chiefs are causing human rights violations, but what are you going to do? A lot. There is a lot we can do, and I believe people would do it if they only knew how many options we actually have. And I'm happy if normie court watchers and establishment politicians consider me a bad influence. I am all about that Ferris Bueller life, y'all. And I'm always encouraging my friends to skip indoctrination school and take over a parade. If you've listened to this whole series, first of all, thank you. But more important, I have bad news for you. You're like me now. You can never again hear about a Supreme Court ruling and say, but there's nothing we can do. You can never again nod politely while your elected leaders pretend that they are powerless to stop the extremism of the Supreme Court. You can never again comfort yourself with the false belief that the system is working as intended or hope that things will naturally work themselves out. Now you know, as I do, that the court can be reformed, it can be changed, and it can be stopped. 
And you know that the people who will not reform it or change it or stop it hold those positions because they like or are willing to live with the outcomes this court is producing. Most likely, that's because those outcomes do not take away their rights or their dignity or their ability to hop on a super yacht and sail away from all the problems. There are many bad arguments against court reform, but now you know how to defeat them. You know court expansion is not new or radical. You know term limits and ethics reforms can be implemented. You know how Congress can take back power by controlling the court's docket or stripping the court of its jurisdiction. You know what can be done. Now we just need to find more people willing to do it. In the words of Yoda, pass on what you have learned. Save us again. This podcast was produced by Connor Gillies, Ludwig Hurtado, Babette Thomas, and Lizzie Ratner. Our original music was made by Ellington Pete. And I'd also like to thank Thea Smith, Peter Lucas, Don Gutenplan, and Bhaskar Sankara for making this series possible.